Father, we thank you today that we have the privilege of sitting at the feet of Jesus and that we have the privilege of uh, having the Spirit of God himself, the author of Holy Writ, uh, to be our teacher. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. And we say with Samuel of old, speak, O Lord, for your servant listens. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this place be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. For we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Just recently, I was um, out on the deck barbecuing and uh, I, looked, I looked east and I saw something faint, something glowing, something I didn't recognize right away. It looked at first just like some clouds were a little bit brighter, more distinct than the others. But slowly that glow began to strengthen. And I realized that what I was witnessing was a moonrise. And we hear a lot about sunrises, but we don't hear so much about moonrises. But I was entranced. And as it rose, it was so quiet. And it was so remarkably beautiful. It doesn't have the radiant, boisterous glory of a sunrise. But the moonrise is distinctly beautiful. And as I stood there and I began to think about it, I began to think about the way that God has set the moon as a sign for us in the sky. Night after night, waxing and waning, waxing and waning, but a constant light in the witness of God in great darkness. It's a constant reflection of a glory much greater than itself. And I began to think about the church and how God sets the church in a great dark to witness to glory that is much bigger than itself and how the church waxes and wanes, waxes and wanes. Sometimes the church is big and resplendent and sometimes the church appears to be just a sliver of its former self, a small and glimmering crescent. Sometimes we expect and think that the church should be like the sun enlightening the whole world, undeniable, blazing all day long, blinding people with its searing and its scorching light. But I don't think the church is like the sun. I think it's like the moon. And I think we're placed in the night sky by God to reflect a glory that is much bigger than we are. I think the church is a great light, a compelling light and a beautiful light but it's surrounded by darkness, and in its setting, the darkness is much larger than the light. And after I watched it for a while, I, I fetched the binoculars from inside, and my meat was getting overcooked, uh, but I, I peered at the moon with those lenses, and as I adjusted the, the focus, I began to make out distinctly the craters of the moon. It was something else to see the ridges of those craters, and I found myself talking to the moon, and I said to the moon, how punished you have been. The whole, moon, uh, the whole surface of the moon, it's pocked with massive suffering. It's been bombarded with relentless assault for ages, and yet no one looks at the moon and thinks that it shines less or thinks that the moon is less beautiful because of all those craters. And in our reading today from Romans, the first thing that the apostle does after announcing this grand doctrine 
of justification by faith, the first thing that he does is to draw our attention to the church's suffering. It really struck me that Paul does this. The first thing pastorally that he does is to bring into view the reality of suffering and to help us to make sense of it. Verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, you all know now very well that Paul brings us through a great, uh, a great a street of horrors. And it's been tempting when we get to chapter 4, when we get to the glory and the freedom that God justifies the ungodly, it's tempting to think that the good news of the gospel now means that the believer has been translated into a pure realm of glory and triumph, a life of sheer resurrection power with little thought of the place of the cross. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he understood these temptations very well and he wrote quite a bit about them. He calls this temptation to think that we're translated into a life of pure glory and triumph. He calls this the Theologia Gloriae, the, theo the theology of glory. And it's the very opposite of what Luther calls the Theologia Crucis, the theology of the cross. True Christianity, Martin Luther says, not only sees God through the cross, but the true Christian knows God by the experience of the cross. It's what Paul says in Philippians 3. We know Christ by sharing his sufferings. And Paul isn't talking here about hangnails and headaches. Paul isn't even talking about those great sufferings that we have in common with the rest of the world. But both Paul and Luther mean this, sharing in the bitter moments of Christ's sufferings for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of the kingdom of God. Sharing in slander, Christ was called a devil. Sharing in the rejection, Christ begins his ministry by crowds trying to drive him off a cliff. Sharing in the betrayal, Christ was betrayed by one of his own, betrayed with a kiss, and the rest of his little band forsake him, and the one who's supposed to be his rock denies him. Paul reminds us today as he announces this great news of justification that suffering is important. Glory doesn't produce endurance. Glory doesn't produce character. Paul doesn't even say that justification by faith produces these things. No, suffering does. One of my great privileges in life was to sit at the feet of one of the, uh, the best uh, Reformation theo uh, the uh, theologians in Canada. His name was the Reverend Dr. Victor Shepherd. And Shepherd says, uh, he says, in the triumphalism of North American Christianity, Luther's theology of the cross has evaporated, and it behooves us to recover it as quickly as we can. Crux nostra est theologia sola. Luther said, the cross alone is our theology.
The cross alone is our theology. And what Luther doesn't mean by the theology of the cross is that because Jesus died for me, and now I am justified, I am walking the path of unmitigated glory. That's not what he means. That's not the theology of the cross. Rather, Luther means this. Jesus justifies me so that now I may know him in the experience of the suffering of the cross, that I may experience the calumny and the shame and the loneliness and the trouble and the difficulty, and through these things I may not only know Christ, but I may become like him. Listen to the words of our Lord today. If anyone would come after me, if you would come after Jesus today, if that's where your heart is, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in many ways, Luther's disciple, he wrote a very important little book I recommend it to all of you. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, Bonhoeffer asks this question. He says, where's the place of blessing for the Christian? Where is the place where the disciple can be blessed? And he says, there's only one place. And there's only one place. And that is where the poorest and the meekest and the most sorely tried of all men is to be found on the cross at Golgotha. The fellowship of the Beatitudes is the fellowship of the crucified. From the cross comes the call, blessed, blessed, blessed are you when all manner of men shall reproach you and persecute you and say all manner of evil things against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they, the prophets that were before you. Brothers and sisters, I tell you something. Learning is wonderful. Books are wonderful. The Bible is wonderful. And in Tozer's words, we should live in the Bible as a fish lives in the sea. But it's a mistake this morning to think that we can learn Jesus and know Jesus simply by memorizing chapter and verse. We know him and we become like him by the cross, by sharing in his suffering. Suffering, Paul says today, produces endurance. As Jesus endured the cross, we read in uh, Hebrews 12, despising the shame, so suffering in the gospel brings us to the endurance of Jesus, bearing all things for the sake of the kingdom, waiting patiently for the sake of the kingdom, looking beyond the here, looking beyond the now, enduring the pain now because we are confident in the gospel of the better hereafter, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, wherein dwells perfect righteousness. And then Paul says endurance through suffering produces character. Brothers and sisters, how do you become like Jesus? Paul says we are reconciled and we are justified not by works, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And then he says this, and we become like Jesus 
through suffering and through enduring. We are justified in order to become a people of the cross. But let's not forget today what the cross is. The cross, writes Bonhoeffer, means suffering, and it means rejection, and it means shame. Listen to Calvin, our brother Calvin. He says this, he says, the Lord sometimes so depresses and so hinders his people for a time that they can hardly breathe. You know, when I consider the moon and I consider how it's been pulverized for eons, it's striking to me that when I look up at the night sky, I don't think of that satellite as something that's been ruined or something that's been pitied, but instead I'm captivated by its quiet beauty. It lights up the night and it graces the skies and the scars on its surface become part of its glory. Sometimes, Calvin says, the pain is so severe that we can hardly breathe and we can hardly remember the source of any consolation. But whatever comes to us, whatever strikes our surface, whatever pulverizes us, he says, is from the hand of a most indulgent father. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, hear this today. He is working for our good. And what the evil one means for our destruction, God means for our good, and he means for our glory. And the scars, the impact craters, will only make us more like Jesus, and he will make us through these things to light up the night of this world with a glorious and a quiet beauty. And therefore we have hope, Paul says, and hope of this kind, it won't put us to shame. And so may God grant us today to hear the truth of his word and to live in obedience to it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.